All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. Packed show. Packed show. A couple of things I want to say right up front. One, I love you. Uh, two, are we good? Three, uh, well, two is enough. I got nothing. I, I do want to say this, though. If you're in the Los Angeles area, uh, myself and the... Um, the uh, the infamous and uh, and amazing Jerry Stahl are going to be at the last bookstore tonight doing a reading. I believe it's seven thirty. I'll be reading from Attempting Normal. Jerry will be reading from his new book, Happy Mutant Baby Pills. And I'm going to talk to Jerry in a minute. He came by. We're doing some work on some other things, writing a thing about some stuff for a thing. And uh, I was like, dude, let's get on the mics, man. Let's uh, let's hash it out for a second about the new book. Jerry's one of those cats who uh, I met years ago, and I don't know who's like me or, you know, if you're like me or I guess some of you relate to me, but you know, you meet a dude and you're like, damn, I want to know that guy. How do I get to know that guy? And I wasn't stalking him or nothing, but obviously there's a lot of people that feel that way about Jerry. It's like, that guy's got to have some stories and he's a relatively quiet cat when you meet him, but he just had this intensity. And uh, I was like, man, how do I how do I talk to that guy? How do I get to know that guy? You know, and it wasn't a bromance situation. I just looked up to him and I I knew that uh, he had some dark wisdom that I needed. And over the years, we became friends. And uh, now we just laugh a lot. See what happens. See, you think it's all darkness. It's not all darkness. Have some laughs, then a little darkness. But Jerry will be uh, be here on the show in just a second. Also on the show, Booker T., uh, you may be familiar with him on almost all of the Stax records or perhaps on, uh, you know, on the Booker T and the MG records. Uh, being a, a, a born-again vinyl person, it was uh, a pretty big thrill to talk to Booker T. And uh, I learned a lot, as will you. Got some good Otis Redding stories. Got some good Stax Records stories. Just the, you know, that whole world of Stax Records, it sort of gets overshadowed uh, by Motown sometimes, but, you know, Stax Records was e- essential and uh, extremely important in the history of uh, American music, certainly. And I I don't know how you came about that stuff. Okay, so I'm 50. There you have it. I'm 50. You knew that, though. I'm 50. We covered that. I'm not complaining. Everything is okay. I'm dealing with the loneliness, but I'm dealing with it with music because there's nothing better for loneliness in the long term or heartache for that matter than fucking music. Look, I want to get my friend uh, Jerry Stahl on the mic and let's talk about his new book, Happy Mutant Baby Pills, for a couple of minutes and also talk about uh, the event we're doing tonight, Friday, the 8th. I think it's at 7.30 at the last bookstore here in L.A., Jerry Stahl and myself, uh, engaging in the uh, in the, the witty dark things. But let's be honest, he's a little darker than me. A little bit darker. So, Jerry, Jerry Stahl is, in, uh, is, is here. We're working on some other things. I, I want to, first of all, thank you for uh, writing an episode of uh, the new season of Marin, which is exciting. It's exciting for me. It was exciting to work with you since we've been friends. And yes. Since, uh, you know, we've, we've, well, we actually did. We work, worked together. That worked did. out. 
beautifully. Yeah, the HBO. HBO. Yeah. That that was a classic story where we put a year into a script uh, that was interrupted by the writer strike. Right. And then you know during that strike we couldn't work, so you decided to almost kill yourself writing a an opus, painkillers. Right. I wrote a uh, just a massively up upbeat novel about. Uh, it was uh, sort of a comic romp with Joseph Mengele. <laughs> it was the angle. He was alive and well and living in He was in alive and well and living in Reseda, and he wasn't happy about it. And uh, he was very upset because essentially the Nazis won. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Nazis didn't permit smoking. Hitler was into health food. Right. And Germany's doing great and we're dying. And... Uh, a private detective had to go to San Quentin and find out if it was really him, and then they uh, ended up bonding up. Yeah, and this book, I remember, almost uh, almost killed you. It literally almost killed you. I spent a lot of time in the genocide zone yeah. at four in the morning, and uh, <laughs> it makes you a lot of things, but festive and upbeat aren't two of them. <laughs> Just like, oh my God. And then we, oh, then we came back, we finished the script, and we delivered it to HBO on the day the head of HBO left. You can't really argue with timing like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a gift from the show business gods, really. <laughs> it was it was fucking ridiculous. Thank you for the script. By the way, I'm leaving. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what they're going to do with it, uh, but uh, well, I know what like, they did with it. <laughs> yeah, it's holding they, open a door, shelved was, it. Yes, over. It's under a shelf. But uh, but now we have uh, we have the new book, Happy Mutant Baby Pills. Which is, um, how do you feel about that? How how much did this take out of your life? This gave back. Oh, good. Thank God. Yes. Uh, I had a void and it filled it. This was a great book to write because yeah. a lot of it is about uh, the chemical toxins, the drugs that we don't volunteer to take. Like what? Oh, like say in human breast milk. Yes. now has paint thinner and benzene and lead and uh-huh. lithium. Yeah. Which... You know, if you're my kid, you might need some lithium, so it's not all bad. Yeah, some of it's good. Sure. It's just in there? Silver lining. Yes, it's all in there. How is paint thinner in breast milk? It's because in our water supply, Mark, oh, all these things shit. get dumped. Yeah. So uh, everything you've ever flushed, sprayed, consumed, it's all there. Okay. And now, so where- Everything from rust-oleum to antidepressants. And this is, and, and this is like the, the through line of the, of it's the novel? It's a through line. It's yeah. a through line because he meets uh, the character who is himself a failed writer, mm. oddly enough. That's I, it was, weird. It was a reach. Yeah. I don't know where you got that guy. Uh, he's the guy who read the backs of cereal boxes as a kid Yeah, and grew up and wrote the backs of cereal boxes. <laughs> that was his gig? That was his gig, among <laughs> other things. He wrote the side, well, he wrote the side effects on uh, pharmaceutical- <laughs> Yeah. Products. So he came up with anal leakage. That was his big thing? Well, it seemed so much more homey than seepage because in houses, stuff leaks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, I have a leak. Yeah. It's fine. But yeah. seepage, not so much. No, no. No. You, you feel dampness. Like it, yeah, yeah. It's not good. So he was great at that. A leak can be plugged. Seepage can't be solved. I couldn't have put it better. <laughs> you should have written the book. And he meets a woman who uh, decides to protest yeah. capitalism and uh-huh. all its involuntary effects. Basically, the way we're all being poisoned by GMOs. Right. The fact that you know Obama puts Monsanto yeah. veterans on his cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. And so she decides to consume every over, under, and beyond the counter substance that she can find by way of giving way to the most deformed, mutant extremo baby she can as her protest to capitalism Uh and the idea for this came by the fact that 
right when my girlfriend at the time got pregnant, I started a, an experimental treatment uh-huh. uh, at Cedars Sinai for hepatitis C, which is the yeah. ex junkies parting gift. <laughs> Here you go, um, a little souvenir from hell. Put it in the bag and go yeah. home with it. Just yeah. don't try to sell it on eBay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's what took Lou Reed out. It's why he ended up getting the bad liver and the liver transplant. Yeah. Not to brag. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told me once I was on these pills, oh, by the way, if your girlfriend who is pregnant mm-hmm. so much as touches the sweat you produce on a sheet on the bed you share that baby will be born purple with wheels and two ron perlman heads <laughs> so you can fuck in a hazmat suit but otherwise so how'd you manage that she went to austin and she left I, there was no other way it wasn't was it worth you for, know yeah. it was romance bigger than deformity it's the eternal question so we for, stared the, for the duration of the pregnancy she just went away I'm not proud of that, but it no, it's, it beats uh, what could have happened. Then, right. You know, I actually got cured of the hep C, and I wrote this book while on the- And you have a beautiful, healthy baby. I have a beautiful, healthy baby, and I am permanently deranged from the medication, which was uh, <laughs> essentially like six months of doing bad acid every day with your post-hosties. Uh-huh. But when the kid came, you, uh, your brain's back for the most part, right? It's as back as it's getting. <laughs> So, so that was the incentive. That was the the inspiration for the for the for the mutant baby. It was the twin threads. Yes, yeah. there was me as that writer guy, and then there was uh, her as the mistress of all things chemical and mutilizing. So, this baby in the in the book, it, it does come out. How does it come out? You didn't bring me a book. I didn't read the book, so you need to tell me about your book. And yet you blurbed it. These are the ironies, but I forgot to bring a book today because I was so excited about coming over See, here. now I feel bad. Don't feel bad. Feel good. Okay. Because you read the parts that had to be read. I did. Yes, you did. Yeah. I, I said uh, My blurb was based on my love for you and my belief in what you do. That's the best kind of blurb. It's the only kind of blurb I get. Nobody actually reads the things. Stop it. I, um, I'm more than happy to read it. I've started all of your it's books. It's all going to work out. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a beautiful thing. Giving a book isn't itself like childbirth. You don't remember writing them. You know, somehow they're just there and, and your vagina hurts for a yeah, while. That's, yeah. I, I don't know how else to explain it. But people it. love the books like, you know, Permanent Midnight I'm familiar with and read. I Fatty I loved and read. The, uh, the, uh, the Gumshoe one. Which one was that called? Uh, there were two gumshoes, Plain Clothes Naked and Painkillers. Plain, Same guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Plain Clothes Naked, I read most More of. More of a crack noir. Uh, yeah, and, and Painkillers was a big book. And I, it was it, t- I, it looked like it was going to take me a, a it lot of time. It was a festival of Mangala. Not everybody wants that. That was like life. 400 pages, though. And it's getting bigger. That's the irony. It's now 800 <laughs> pages. It's metastasizing on the shelf. I don't know how that works. So w- without ruining the story of happy mutant babies, the it, outside of it you know, seeming darkly hysterical... How can it not be? What uh, you know? What 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 happens? To, so the baby is born. Let's put it this way: as yeah. it's described in the book, they look at the baby, yeah, and it was perfect. That's <laughs> that's all we're gonna get. That could cover many many yeah. results. So I want to tell people tonight it's Friday, and if you're listening to this on Friday, then you'll know this. If you're listening to it later than Friday, then I don't know what to tell you, but uh, Jerry and I are going to be reading from our books. He will be reading from Happy Mutant Baby uh, Pills, and I'll be reading from Attempting Normal at the last bookstore uh, in downtown Los Angeles, probably at 8 o'clock, and I think we're going to talk and probably do a Q&A. So that's the weird thing. It's like, we'll do, like we should do a Q&A, don't you think? 
Absolutely, yeah. And then, well, it, that always makes me feel weird because people be asking you questions, be like, why am I here? Maybe I can feel, maybe I'll go out into the audience with the microphone. Do you have a question for Jerry? Can I, I think that? you should go out in the audience with a microphone and then ask the questions. <laughs> Just take a question, go like, that's no good. Jerry, Let's do it this way. I don't want to see you in the audience. I want you right next to me up there on a couple of benches, and we'll just uh, no, shoot the good. shit. No, I'm, I'm, I'm down for that. That'd be great. So I imagine you can get the book on Amazon and all the uh, outlets where books are gotten. Do you know? All those outlets. Yeah. Jerry Stahl is indie, also- Indie and non-indie. Yeah. And, and full-on corporate. And Jerry is now on Twitter. He's nervous about it. Uh, what's the Twitter name? To, uh, what's your Twitter name? Some Jerry Stahl. At some Jerry Stahl. We got to get you verified. I got to figure out how to do that. I used to know a guy at Twitter. I think I still know someone at Twitter. I'm not sure what verified means. It means but now you get I the feel... blue V. Wow. Like if you look at people like that have their name and then next to it there's a blue V, that means they've been they've been uh, verified by Twitter. They've been what do you uh, when you do the sword? What is that called? Coronated? Uh, yes. Yeah, or, is that what it is? Yes. Well, get... that, did you have a coronation ceremony when you got your blue V? I, it was it was an exciting day because that's that makes. Did you know it was coming? Or was like, oh my god! I, I tracked got the it blue down. V. I used to. I knew a guy at Twitter. You went and actively sought coronation. I did, I did because when people set up fake accounts, people don't know. So when you I get, have all these fake Facebook accounts, funny you should say that. There's yeah. all this crazy shit out there. And they're attesting pages. to be me. Yeah, fan pages. But if there are fan pages, but even on Twitter, there's photos in this little photo section. There's a photo of like a gym teacher and children. It isn't even me. I don't know how that happened. And there's gonna, photos of me that I don't even recognize. You're it's horrifying. To, so what are your, what, as a new guy on Twitter, you know, what, what, are, what are your fears? What, well, how are you? You know, I'm not going to lie. There's some size shame. There's some tiny number shame. I fucking felt it. You got a little Twitter dick. Well, I got like 267. All Who right, am we'll I? try and jack it up, man. And then there's the, uh, you know, the self-promotion rash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, gee, this is so uncomfortable. I'm literally breaking. I'm going to spend more on Lotrimin every day than I used to on heroin <laughs> just, to just get rid of the self-promotion the, rash. The, the shame rash of Oh, of, my of God. Yeah. It's like, I just became a writer so I could pretend I didn't care what people think. And now, apparently, <laughs> I'm publicly obsessing. Well, th that's part of the process. I w when I first started my podcast, you're the one who talked me. You were my Twitter. You were my Twitter know, guide. My Twitter Eskimo. Oh boy. Well, I, you said Jerry, just put the shit out there and it'll get retweeted. That's right. That's that's my belief. I mean, I started with a very small Twitter dick, and I I made a public appeal. I can barely fit in the room now. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing but Twitter cocking here. I know, man. I know. I just broke three hundred thousand. Was a big day. That is huge. I'm in like the low three figures, man. I mean, I it's we'll my voice it should there. be higher. Yeah, but but you're still you're still you're also it's the guy. It's day three. It's day three of right. Twitter for me. But you're also the guy that says that's about all the that's about all the fans you have. So we've got to bring you new people. Well, call me a cockeyed optimist. I don't know. <laughs> We're gonna get you new people, man. But uh, I'm excited about the book. I've got the right people. Yeah, the yeah the yeah that's important. That you have the right people following. I was you on almost Twitter. about to drop names, and I thought that's just fucking lightweight, so I'm not going to go there. All right, well, you don't have to. People can go find out for themselves. Yeah. Um, it, what is it again? That Jerry Stahl, or it could be what, what, that what? will be the one that begins, <laughs> and will now have more people than I following <laughs> what, than I do. Wait, what is it's it? It's some Jerry Stahl. Some Jerry Stahl. I, I had a media. I was up in San Francisco for this Litquake thing. Yeah, and somebody, a media professional, came up to me and said, "You know, there are dead war criminals who tweet more than you." You've wow. just got to get on it. Wow. And I just thought that is one of the most cryptic things a perfect stranger has ever said to me. Yeah. Well, not everybody takes to the to the Twitter sea, you know what I mean? It's like uh, it, you, you'll see a lot of people out there that start and then they kind of 
trail off. You got to get it. I'm squirming just you the get, way you're looking at me when you're saying. I feel my. I'm leaving a slime trail. There's got to be a way this. that you can get addicted to it. There's got to be a way. If no, I, can, I, I am, I am kind of strung out. I'm putting it out there, but you know, then I think, well, that's great. I just shouted to a room full of 200 people who are busy doing other things. 200's not nothing. We'll no, get, we're gonna get it up there. We'll get it up there. Thank you. Well, day three, maybe I'll crack 300. All right, all right. So come see us tonight if you're listening to this on Friday. If you're either way. Uh, go pick up Happy Mutant Baby uh, Pills by Jerry Stahl. This is, uh, you know, this is part of an ongoing opus of uh, uh, of Jerry documenting, you know, every dark and uh, uh, powerful facet of the human spirit. Well, you know, if you've done the research, yeah. However involuntary, yeah, you might as well write about it. That's true. I mean, do you, but do you do that research if you're not writing? I mean, do you compulsive? Well, you just don't know it's research. Yeah. I mean, if an accountant had lived the life I'd led, what the fuck's he going to do with the pain? Right. You know, lucky me, I get to like put it between the <laughs> but, covers of a book. But would you have sussed about that shit anyways? If I were an accountant? Well, no, if you were just you. Yeah, if you were an accountant, would you be get hung up on the drinking water? Are you that kind of guy? Uh, I would be more hung up on the lawsuits from fucking up people's personal fortunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right okay yeah. but you as you were these things that were just where you were just interested forget in forget vhs you... betamax <laughs> go there <laughs> go way back yeah analog tape but wait put your money in that but are coming you, back were you looking at that shit anyways or did you just do it for research i've always been obsessed by that but somehow when you know there is a baby coming in the shit that you figure oh, oh it's right. just me right what do i care i'm right. 106 i'm gonna be dead anyway yeah you know? What do I care if so I get So you were actually GMOs? concerned for the- Suddenly people. I realized you know, you're bringing a baby into this toilet of a planet. And uh, the way I handled my complete fear yeah. of defects and chemical fallout and lead and the rest of it was to just dive in to the worst possible. I was looking at websites. There are de- there's, there's a deformity out there called the Cree du Chat syndrome. <laughs> Where your baby, it's French for cry like a cat. Yeah. You would like to have a child. Like, you, you would love <laughs> I, this, I actually. One of those you could babies. have one on your porch. Yeah. Um, where they cry like a cat. That's, and, but, and their brains don't develop. Oh, my God. And, you know, I, that, this is, that's, that's how I, you know, I was alone because I was too toxic to be around the woman and I loved who was having my child. And wasn't she a lucky gal? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Explaining uh, to her friends, my my my. Uh, it's not my, that he dumped me while I was pregnant and yeah. sent me to Austin. No, he he's his fluids are so toxic. He's very toxic right now, and, and not the usual way. Yeah, not the I don't mean emotional. <laughs> that, that's what it is. Yeah. But this is actually verifiable, as you would say. Yeah. In a chemical laboratory. Oh my God! So to to sort of uh, to deal with that fear, you just buttressed it with more information than anyone could possibly know about the possibilities mm-hmm. of. I uh, went dark and I went deep. All right. Well, that's a that that is the best pitch for this book I've heard. And funny, dark, deep, and funny, right? I like to think those are the big three. All right, man. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Well, that was a nice chat with my friend Jerry. Come see us tonight at the uh, last bookstore. Pick up Jerry's book, Happy Mutant Baby Pills. It's always out there. as You can always depend on Jerry for being a little out there. 
I was turned on to Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Aretha Franklin, um, you know, who are other, uh, Smokey Robinson, you know, some Motown, some Stax people. I was, t- I had a very, and I've talked about this experience before. When I was a kid, when I was 14, 15 years old, 15 years old, I walked, uh, worked at a bagel shop across from the University of New Mexico. And next door to that shop was a record store called Budget Tapes and Records. There were two guys that worked there that helped define me as a human being. Steve LaRue was one. And Jim Regan was another. Steve LaRue turned me on to the residents, David Bowie, John Hassel, Brian Eno, Robert Fripp. Um, He turned me on to Fred Frith, an entire world of experimental music and possibilities that blew my fucking mind. He was the dude. Jim Regan, on the other hand, was an old timer, a little older than Steve, definitely older than me, old school music guy. And so there was a little battle for my soul at Budget Tapes and Records on Central. Little battle for my soul, because Jim Regan be there, LaRue would be there. LaRue was uh, you know, taking me out into the wild with experimental music, art rock, and all that. And Jim Regan was like, hey man, you know, that stuff's all well and good, but you gotta ground yourself in the classics. You know, you gotta know what real soul is. Cause that stuff is abstract. You gotta know what real soul is. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Buddha? What are you saying, Jim? And he said, you got to come over to my house, bring some blank cassettes, and I'll load you up. And I'm like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know Jim that well. I knew he was married, wasn't scared really, but it's always weird when you go over to the older guy's house uh, with the blank tapes. But I went over there and he had this massive record collection. We sat there for like a half a day, if not more, just going song for song on all his Motown records and all his stack records. And I, I left with two or three CDs loaded up with all the stuff. Some Booker T, uh, some uh, you know, some Otis, some Smokey, some James Brown. I mean, all the shit. I mean, basically, you know, black music of that time. And I had heard some of it, you know, on classic hits or here or there. But man, I played those tapes until they wore out. If it weren't for Jim Regan, I don't know if I would have known fucking anything about about real soul music. So for me. To actually have the opportunity, you know, it just came out of nowhere. You know, Booker T. Jones wants to, you know, he's he's out and he's talking. I'm like, fuck it, let's, I want to talk to Booker T. So uh, I was in awe of this guy and he's a very humble guy. You know, what was interesting to me, and I don't know if you can see it, he's, he still sees himself, you know, he, he's a guy in the band. But uh, he had, a, you know, a profound impact on uh, on American music. So uh, enjoy this conversation uh, with uh, with Booker T. Jones. Too much me in the head is never a good thing. <laughs> I live with it all the time. So, you know, it's one of these situations where I, I, I get a, a, a genius artist come in here that's been around for as long as you have, and I, yeah, it's hard to figure out where the hell to start. Well, I wanted to tell you one thing that yeah. was on my mind when we walked in, because we were talking about John Fogarty. Yeah. And uh, the thing that popped into my head was uh, going back to uh, 1969, 1970, when we met those guys out in Oakland, yeah, my guys, my guys being Steve Cropper and Al Jackson Jr. and Duck Dunn, would all they always seem to play better when when we were hanging out with Fogarty and Doug? Oh, really? And evidence of that is on this show that we played, and it was filmed, yeah, at Oakland Coliseum. Yeah, have you ever heard Booker T and the MGs play "Time Is Tight" like that? Really? 
That was the best one. Check it out. Check check Steve Cropper's intro of the song. Yeah. His his purpose, the way he played it, the 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 groove. Check out Al Jackson standing up on the the set. <laughs> yeah. They now Credence was standing side stage, all four of them. Right. Right. Watching. Yeah. And that's why my band played like it did. <laughs> it seemed like those guys inspired them. Oh, wow. And they wanted to impress them. And I didn't realize that till you mentioned it. We were walking in. I was thinking about John and uh, and his guys and the, the type of group they were. And that group, uh, I guess, you know, my guys had thought maybe they had influenced them in some way. Did you, uh, did you record with him in the studio as well at all? Yeah, they had a Cosmos factory over there in Oakland. Yeah. And we went over there and... Uh, played and they had a little studio in there. And you, did you jam or was that recorded? It was you don't mostly know. jamming. Yeah. It was mostly just sitting down, playing, having fun. Uh, but uh, we were supposed to have been getting ready for this concert right. coming up. The, the one we, I don't know how much getting ready we did for the concert. <laughs> yeah. We just jammed all night. Well, he's a, a fairly kind of a, you know, like a, a very intense and, and furious uh, artist in a way. Not furious angrily, but he, and Fogarty had an intensity and a Fog- drive Fogarty to Fogarty has purpose. <laughs> Fogarty, <laughs> purpose. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in going in, like I literally just tweeted that I was going to talk to you and then all of a sudden I enter this, uh, you know, the Booker T. Jones rabbit hole. You know, some guy immediately out of nowhere goes, ask him about Ray Stinnett. And I don't even know who Ray Stinnett is. So then Ray I, Stinnett, I got to go look up Ray Stinnett. Ray Stinnett, we call him Ray Stinnett. Yeah, Was Stinnett. the guitar player uh, for Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Willie Bully. Willie Bully. Yeah. I met him in Memphis. Yeah. And uh, he was uh, probably one of the few people in Memphis at that time who had been out to California and seen the scene. Mm-hmm. And he comes back talking about peace and love. And so late, mid-60s? <clears throat> late 60s? Mid-60s. Yeah. Uh, and then Memphis, you know, yeah. Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> no peace and love in Memphis. So naturally you start hanging out with him, you yeah. know, because I'm over at Stax and this is all, you know, different. And, you know, mm-hmm. So that's that's how I met him. And uh, he actually... Um, you produced up, a record? <clears throat> produced a record. I had come out here and made a deal with Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss and they gave me a production company. And uh, Ray was one of the one of the records I put on that production company. Well, let's go back then to the beginning because the stack sound is something that uh, I, I think you're high, largely responsible for, correct? I was uh, by accident, yes. So you, when you started out, a, 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 you, could, uh, you were one of these guys who could play a lot of different instruments naturally. When I started out, well, when I, I was How trying to reach the piano with two fingers on my tippy toes. Uh-huh. And then I was asking for a drum yeah. and a ukulele, and my father finally reciprocated when I was ten and bought me a clarinet. And I had the I had the key to the band room uh-huh. because I was young, but I, I was became an assistant band director and I had the key, so I could teach myself the alto sax, baritone sax, baritone horn, trombone, all those things. I could slip in there after school in high school. In junior high, in school, junior high, and, and before junior high school, uh-huh. and practice on them. And you grew up in Memphis. Grew up in Memphis. And what kind of you got a big family? What's the old man do? Oh no, my my father was the school teacher, the math teacher across the street from Porter Porter Junior High. Uh huh. And his friend was a band director. And um, no, just just I was the only child. I, mean, I have an older sister here in Los Angeles, but she's twenty years older than me. I have an older brother, twenty two years older than me. Wow, a lot older. Mm-hmm. And they're both still around. Oh, they're here, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> still kicking. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so back in Memphis, then, what kind of music were you taking in at that time? I mean, we're talking about, what are we, early 50s are we talking, when you started playing clarinet and the that first, kind of stuff? The first music I heard was my mother on piano playing, mm-hmm. playing W.C. 
lits Chopin mm-hmm. on the piano, mm-hmm. on her mother's upright piano, mm-hmm. and gospel music, classical music, Handel in church, mm-hmm. Handel in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Across the street, of course, was the Sanctified Church, which was more gospel-type mm-hmm. music. I could hear that from the street. So, so that's you, what I was hearing. So you could stand in the middle of the street and get both sides. Exactly. One's got a little bit of a groove, one's a little heavier. You got it. You right. got it, Mark. That right. was exactly it. And, yeah. Uh-huh. That was at the Mount Olive Cathedral, and directly across the street was the Pentecostal mm-hmm. t- Temple, directly across the street. And so that was before, you know, I turned on the radio. Mm-hmm. I turned on the radio, and I get John R. from Nashville, and I'm hearing Hank Williams and Kitty Wells. And that was all that was on. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. But it was amazing because it was such soulful country music. I, you know, I just, uh, you know, Jack White started reissuing some of those Sun recordings, mm-hmm. and it's amazing how stripped down that stuff was. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there was n- almost nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Just, it was raw. It was right there. You could hear the instruments perfectly. Patsy Klein. Mm-hmm. Patsy Klein, And it was like blues almost to me. Did you hear blues? Oh, man. Blues, yes. I'm, I was just going to get to yeah, yeah. Johnny Ace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. B.B. King. Right. B.B. King in person. Where'd right, you see right him? on Blues. Right. So, uh, on, on Beale Street, waiting for my mother. You know, my dad would pick her up after school, and she right. worked at Union Protective with yeah. Professor Whalum down there, and she was a secretary there, and I'd sit in the back seat, and I could hear those guys, right? They were standing right there. On the street. They, they were playing for money right there. B.B. King was playing for money on the street when B. B. you first King, saw B. B. him. B.B. King came up, all of them came up from Mississippi like B.B. Because Memphis was the city, was the biggest city, and that's where they could make some money. Right in the clubs, they play in the afternoon before they play the clubs. Oh, I see. So mm-hmm. they, and and they just get pull a crowd. They play right there on the corner with the band. Right there, it was like a Walgreens type store. No, uh-huh. no, no, no. Just the the chair, uh-huh. the guitar, and the and the and the, uh, oh, the shady man. shady spot at uh-huh. Fourth and Fourth and Hernando, Beale and Hernando, mm-hmm. and that's where you were taken in. And then uh, the after I got the uh, the bicycle. Yeah. And the, the well, first yeah. paper How route. old were you there? This is nine, ten years yeah. old. That's the one that got me up to Macklemore Avenue. And that's when I discovered the jazz. And there, the jazz messengers. Uh-huh. And because I went in there at Satellite uh, Records with Steve Cropper, who was the clerk. And he allowed me to hear the Ray Charles uh-huh. and the, the uh, Hank Crawford and the the uh, Fathead Newman playing jazz in Ray Charles's band. What was Ray playing? What year was it? What Ray was, he... was playing saxophone. Oh, really? Really? Ray played alto saxophone, and uh, Hank Crawford played uh, baritone sax, and um, he just had an amazing band. That was my first exposure to real jazz. So this is before Ray got his groove, too, then? Like, before he became Ray Charles? Quincy Jones was his arranger back Uh then. And there was one song in particular that I heard play. He played Hammond M3 organ. And I'm specific to say that because it's different from a B3. How is it different? Because you've used both. Yeah. The M3 is the spinet model. It was the model that Ray had. It's got the kind of the smaller sound. Uh-huh. But it's got the funkier little kind of electric sound. Right. And there's only one speaker in between the knees. Okay. And that's the one Ray played on One Man Julep. I heard that. Yeah. And it changed my life. Yeah, that was the moment? That was the moment. The clouds opened? I said, that's the sound I want to make in my life. And I must have been really young. Uh-huh. But I'll never forget it. And David Porter told him, well, I know a guy that can play. And then he came and got me out of my class. At uh, school? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it's just like, yeah, the clouds did open up. How old and, were you? And I told him, I was... uh Fourteen, I think. <laughs> Fourteen, and the guy yeah. from the record company said, "I yeah. got a kid. Yeah, he can handle this." And and I played on that song, "Cause I Love You," the baritone sax. And then I told him when I left, I told Cropper, "I can play piano." Mm-hmm. 
And I think Floyd Newman, the baritone sax player, told him I could play piano too. And this was a satellite, not at Stax yet. This was it was still called satellite. Right, it right. wasn't named Stax right, by then. Right. They was they were still selling records out of the front. But it was the same guy. It yeah, was yeah, okay. they were trying to establish uh, a country record company and uh, 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 and it wasn't working and yeah. Rufus Thomas uh, the DJ right. convinced them to record a song on him. Uh-huh. It was the best thing they ever did. Yeah. Because it sold. And, and that was the one you played sax on. That was the one I played sax on. And then they went on from there to uh, to get William Bell in there, and he became a songwriter, singer for them. But anyway, I told them I could play keyboards. Right. So uh, they, they, they tried me out. Yeah. And uh, they had a little piano in there, and I went in there, and next to the piano was sitting a Hammond M3 organ. <laughs> so. They're <laughs> just calling your name. You just sat there, and we, and you sat down at that thing for the first time, and what did you play? Well, it was two years later. Uh, there was a little riff that I'd been playing in the clubs. I had my own little kind of combo band playing the clubs because I started making pretty good money playing after school at, uh, yeah. at nightclubs. And I was playing blues yeah. in F. And I played this blues in F, and um, we ended up calling it Behave Yourself. Mm-hmm. They loved it. They thought it would be it was good enough to put it out as a record, as a single. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was one Sunday afternoon. So that's when Green Onions came in. That's when the, the other little piano riff came in on the M3 this time mm-hmm. instead of the piano. And that turned out to be Green Onions. And uh, we just thought it was okay. And yeah, yeah. Put it on the B-side, Volt Records. Yeah. A-side, Behave Yourself. B-side, Green Onions. Uh-huh. Took it this. Steve took it down to the WLOK and asked them to play it. They played it. <laughs> yeah. Played it, played it, played it. Behave yourself. And, and which, this, what kind of station was that? R&B station. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A little station uh, downtown. And uh, this guy, Reuben Wa- Washington, uh, just fooling around, mm-hmm. flipped, flipped the song over, flipped the record over. Right. Played the other side. People started calling about it. Uh-huh. And, uh, they were like, "What is that?" Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they ended up, yeah, they ended up repressing the record uh, with Green Onions as the A side, yeah, and Behave Yourself as the B side. And it was their number one hit. It was number one hit. Yeah. And you were what? Sixteen. I turned eighteen that next year. Yeah. So you're just this kid. You they must have been amazed at uh, that you had this talent. I mean, I I don't I don't know what it must have felt like to be like a a, a guy your age in this world. I mean, it must have been just thrilling. Or did you not think about it much? I didn't think about it much. I uh, thought I was pretty lucky to live that close to a record shop <clears throat> that I could get to in a couple of minutes on my bike. Which was the, Satellite Records. Yeah, the yeah. nearest nearest records. Otherwise, I had to convince my dad to get in the car and go out to Sears. Yeah. Crosstown. That was a good ride. Like, right. Uh-huh. Didn't think about it too much. Just pretty much uh, you know, fascinated with music and how it worked and just... Trying to learn scales and learn harmony, and you know. so you knew how to read and everything else. And you, were- I wasn't nearly as good as I wanted to be. Is one of the reasons I went to college. Where'd you go to college? Indiana University. How far is that from Memphis? <clears throat> that was four hundred miles. So that's a that's a that's a schlep. That's a long it haul. It was a drive back yeah. and forth Friday afternoon at Indiana out of class, and then four hundred miles get to Memphis maybe at eleven twelve o'clock at night. It's like a lucky. ten hour drive, right? Yeah. Oh my God! So then, so you were doing gigs on the weekend yep. and doing recording on the weekend, yep. coming in from school. Did you, yep. were you able to finish school? Finish school, know the road like the back of my hand. Still, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you majored in? Uh, what was it? Music then? Music education. I did. Mm-hmm. And what were you? What What was your primary instrument when you were in college? Trom- trombone. I played my senior recital on trombone. Do you still play all these instruments? I did until about ten years, until the flood in New Orleans. When the flood happened and all those kids lost their instruments and all those musicians, 
I found every good instrument I could and sent it down there. That you had? I sent my trombone, mm-hmm. sent my flute, sent my clarinet, sent my tenor saxophone. All those instruments, I sent them to the Dirty Dozen Brass Band in New Orleans. To give to the kids? Yeah, because they lost all their stuff. It's a horrible thing. Yeah. And I you, don't have them now anymore, though. <laughs> but you can get new instruments if you wanted to. Yeah, but. but it takes all my time now just to practice piano and guitar, and I sing a little bit. It, it takes all my time just doing that. Well, this is an interesting thing about, about your sound and about the evolution of who you are, is that you became so identified with this stack sound and and then your own you know music with the Booker T and the MGs, but I mean like I was looking at your 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 career and there was a lot of stuff you did solo. There was some with singing, some without singing. Then you produced other people, and it's pretty fascinating to me. Do you feel like you know you've you you have uh, you seem very broad? You seem like you can do anything. Hmm. And do you feel like what would you say is your specific sound out? Is would you call it that organ sound? Would you say that that's a Booker yeah, T sound? Yeah, I think that's the instrument. Uh, that I express myself best on mm-hmm. is the Hammond. I feel most comfortable and natural on it. Sometimes I'll jump up from the Hammond, though, and grab a guitar uh-huh. when I'm on stage. What kind do you play? Well, I have uh, got a lot of guitars. Uh, <laughs> Which one do you like playing I've, the most? I've got an Ebenez Booker T. Jones model that I leave at home that I really should take with me. Well, you've got your name like, on it. <laughs> yeah, they made that beautiful <laughs> guitar. And I have, I've got a Baxendale guitar that... Uh, that they made for me that's beautiful I just I, you know the guitars are like or the organs are like that too each one's different and they they, they sing differently they, mm-hmm. they play differently really it's organs too huh yes it, each each one the same model sounds same, same model same electronics sounds different what, what is it that makes a, that Hammond sound is it, is it something or it's a because it's not a digital thing it's a it's a it's an electric piano but what what spins it are there tubes in there is there something an oscillator do you know how it works uh, I've stayed away from that side of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do have a digital one that sounds great. Yeah, uh, but it is—it's uh, the ability to uh, sustain a note and hold it, and then have the note move air with the Leslie speaker. Right, right, right. It's the ability to do that. So then you get the still, straight sound, and then you get the movement. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And the movement kind of affects emotion. Right. It's got its, each organ's got its own groove almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And some of them go faster than others. Some of them go slower. And um, it's the combination of the hammer with the Leslie. Except at first on Green Onions, there was no Leslie. There was just a straight organ sound. So you just mic the organ direct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you have organs where you're like, that one's a little faster than that one. we got to play this one. It's a little slower Well, I've gotten rid of them because I've started renting them, and they're all different, and they're 475 pounds, and now with the airlines, I don't fly with them anymore. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just uh-huh. said you meet them, have them meet you there. I'll, yeah. I'll meet the organ at the gig. Yeah. So yeah. now when did you start, when did Stacks change, and when did you sort of become the guys there, the the house band there? What was the, the change Mark, in there? Mark, the yeah. uh, Stacks started to change actually from outside itself. It started to change when American business started to change. When one company realized that it could buy another company and make more money, Stacks began to change. Mm-hmm. Because that's when Gulf and Western Industries was born. Right, and they decided they realized they could buy Paramount Pictures, right, and they could do better, even though it was on the other side on the other side of the country, right. And then Paramount bought Stacks, yeah, you know, and and when the other element came in, and the um, the uh, principals realized we can make a lot more money, right, if we if we sell and we have bigger distribution, sure. I think the focus changed from 
oh, isn't this exciting to do this little song like this? And what about this kid over there? I wonder what he can do. Yeah. And so we stopped taking people off the street, and we started uh, doing it the corporate way. The original thing was almost like a regional thing, correct? It was. It was completely regional. And she was. Uh, she had mortgaged her house, and she was uh, experimenting. She was. Um, she being Estelle Axton, uh-huh. sort of like the mama of the uh-huh, place, uh-huh. Jim Stewart's older sister. And she was giving us ideas and... Uh, trying to promote her son, you know, Packy, and she loved the music, though. Uh-huh. She just got a thrill when we made a song. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, and... Uh, Who was her son? Her son was Packy Axton. Okay. Uh-huh. And when so he, he was, was a sax player with the Marquis. What was the music? It was just straight up R&B the music, or blues? The music was blues. Right. Just... The music was blues, and a lot of it was standards. Okay. That's why I ended up getting together with Willie Nelson, because we had done standards to make a living back then. Well, for Stardust. You Blue produced Moon, Stardust. Blue yeah, Moon, yeah. Stardust, all the songs on Stardust. <laughs> Those, yeah, those are the yeah. ones I'd done as a Beautiful, kid. Beautiful, yeah. Uh-huh. And, okay, so, so this those is were the two on. camps. Okay. The two camps met because uh, the whites were moving out of uh, South Memphis, basically Macklemore Avenue and College Avenue, moving out east, and blacks started to move in and buy those homes. And for some reason, Jim Stewart, his, rec- his studio didn't make it out there in East Memphis, and he decided to go and get a... A theater, an old theater that movie we, theater could we could redo, and the, the the cheapest one was over there in that part of town. Uh huh. So he's trying East to make Memphis. Co- he's trying to make country music over there in South Memphis. <laughs> in South Memphis, okay, <laughs> yeah, all right, with fiddles and everything. So it's, it's like the Alamo, like yeah. he's a, the only white guy in town, is right? Like, yeah, and yeah, people yeah. like me are outside, you know, <laughs> buying Ray Charles records right. from his sister's record shop. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh huh. So so that was the, we that just kind of. Bumped, so she bumped shoulders there. So she moved you in, though. She moved. She supported the music. She supported the music with the record sales. And and he and she finally said, "Look, you got to start recording these guys. They're right here." Yeah, he was at the bank making yeah. his living at the bank. Uh-huh. And she was uh, her husband had a a, day, a steady job, uh, and she was you know pr- convincing him to remortgage and remortgage their house right. to get money to finance. The right, place. right, right. So there you are in a record in a in a, in a movie theater, mm-hmm. and Estelle, you know, you guys start recording, and how do you and Duck Dunn and uh, and Cropper get together because well, all these white kids come yeah. out there and they do the work. They rip out the seats, they put up the foam on the walls. Yeah. Cropper, Dunn, yeah. you know, and they just they just want to play music. They just right. want to be a band. So they right. do anything. They're right. doing this for Jim, yeah, because his sister, you know, and they're doing this for their friend Packy. So they build this recording studio there. And I'm going in there. I'm listening to, you know, the jazz messages. But I'm hearing music coming through the curtain. There's a, something going on back there. Uh-huh. I can hear sounds. You know, I can hear. There's so a band playing back there. You're in the record store. I'm in the rec- I'm in the hear, lobby. Okay. Where they sell popcorn. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That's been turned into a record store. Right. But there's a curtain. Right. Right. Just, just a curtain. Yeah. Yeah. And but I can hear this full band yeah. playing back there. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's that's what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you can't just walk through there. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that was my, that became my purpose in life was to get through that curtain. Where the sounds are coming from. Every day I'd go right. there with my, you know, my RT, ROT, my NDCC uniform on, ride my bike and listen there. It turned into the fact that I was just pretending to listen to records. I really wanted to get back there. <laughs> and you were and you were what, 16, 15? I wasn't 16. I was 13, 14 when that was happening. And what, what kind of uniform were you wearing? National Defense Cadet Corps. They were, they were training me to be a lieutenant in the uh, in the army, so that was like ROTC. It was they like were the same thing. ROTC. They were getting ready to invade Vietnam. Oh right, and they were oh they they were already getting kids prepped at thirteen. I could break down an M one rifle blindfolded. Really at thirteen at that point. Really at that point. Now did you have anything invested in that, or was it just something you had to do? 
it was a school. It was part of my school course. Okay. It was like algebra. Right, right. Or, you just go and do it. Put on the uniform. Yeah. So okay. So there you are, thirteen, fourteen years old, hanging out at uh, at the record store, hearing this sound. Duck Dunn and uh, and those guys are back there. I don't think it was Duck at that point. I think it was some other people, but it was they. But it was Cropper. Uh, yeah, it was definitely Cropper. Mm-hmm. And his Telecaster. And it was Chip Smallman. Uh huh. Jim's partner. Jim Jim wanted to partner with Chips. Chips. Moment. Well, he was a he he went on to be a big guy, right? He did the box tops, right? He right. Was, Produced was, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was uh, that was the original partner with uh, with Jim Stewart. Yeah, and his sister wanted him to partner with her, but he wants to hang out with people like Chips, who was not really the people you really want to hang out with because you're not sure they might have been doing some substances or something. Oh yeah, I yeah. don't know, you know. <laughs> Chips was a, a bad influence. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> but he could play guitar and he was hip. He had a nice sports car. Yeah. So, so when was the moment where you stepped behind that curtain then? David Porter walks into my algebra classroom. The teacher looks at the right. He's got a he's got a hall pass in his hand, and he looks over at me and he says something like, "The band director wants to see him." Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Was he telling the truth? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) He's just gonna run you downtown. He's got the band director's keys, Uh and we run down to the band room, and he says, "Just get get the baritone sax. Come on, we're going down the stacks." Throws it in the back back of this Plymouth. I will never forget this 1967 Plymouth. Yeah, and he scoots over there and run through the door, and then they play this little song for me, and they said, "Do you have an idea for the intro?" And I go. And then Rufus starts singing, yeah. and we got a song. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that must. Have that been, was the moment. That must have been like boom. Like that, that was the moment. I got my mouth, my mouthpiece on, and I, I thought of something to play. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, I, and I made seven bucks. Seven bucks. I wonder how much that record made. I don't know. <laughs> I made a little more than seven bucks, I huh? I don't know. They paid me. So it was, but seven bucks was, was great. Mark, that was great for a kid my age. Yeah, seven unbelievable. Bucks. <laughs> yeah, and then you started doing so. All right, so once now bring us up to speed on like so. Once you get when you graduate college or you graduate high school and you go do the college. I mean, there seems to be a lot of years in there. Where you, what do you, what are you doing with stacks during those years? So you play the sax and you're I'm still working every two- day now as a piano player there. Okay, so that's I, it. I go through my papers right after school, and then I run over to Stacks, yeah. and I try to catch up with whatever song they've been working on right. every day. And I'm the evening session player for the the next two years. And who, who are you? Actually, who, the next eight years. Really? So from, from age like 14 to 21? Yeah. And then, then and, and, but, and Green Onions happened in the middle of that, but you stayed there, and mm-hmm. you were still working. Now, who were the guys coming through? The guys, the first one was Prince Conley, uh, Jim Jim kind of caught the bug with the blues, uh-huh. and he says, "Well, maybe we should try some blues." And this he's a blues guy from Beale Street. Yeah. And then the next guy is um, uh, William Bell with uh, 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 not exactly blues, but uh, R and B. And William's writing songs with a band and uh, with a with a vocal group in high school, and he's leading. The girls are loving it. The girls are falling out over it. Yeah. And so Jim brings him in, yeah. and we are doing. Uh, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. Right, right. And uh, they they said, well, can you play the organ on this? And that was the first time. Yes, I can play the organ. And that's when I played the M3 the first time over there. And I got this kind of little watery sound. Yeah, on, yeah. And I'm answering William, and they they're piping it through the bathroom. Right. And that's like eleventh grade. Right. And that was the first time that you had that sound come out. Mm-hmm. 
And that was part of that. That's it. That's sort of the beginning of the establishing of that groove. It is. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, uh, and then that became, and that's how, like, through that organ and through, I, I guess, Cropper too, and the way you guys played together, mm-hmm. that developed that Stax groove, mm-hmm. right? And it was my life because I had seen this guy with this girl in the. He's trying to get this girl uh, in the, uh, the, the the schoolyard. Mm-hmm trying to kiss her, trying to hold her, and it's William Bell trying to get his wife. Mm-hmm. And they've been together for probably, how long has that been? That's 50 years. Mm-hmm. That, that's how long they've been together. And I'm, it, it's my life. It's yeah. what I was singing. And, and he's singing songs to her. Yeah. And uh, and I'm playing in there in the studio with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then what, now, when did, uh, when did the other artists, like, I, I know that Isaac Hayes was involved in stuff, and then, uh, and then I know that Otis was there, and, and what, when did that Isaac start? Isaac came later. Isaac kind of ended up kind of standing behind and looking. Some people just kind of came in and hung out. Like there who? A, there was a group of young kids that came and hung out, like Carl Cunningham, Roy Cunningham. Carl was younger. Uh, Jimmy King. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Alexander. They kind of come and stand in a different specific car. Would kind of stand near the drums and and Roy uh, uh, and uh, you know Al just took him under his wing uh-huh. as, a, as a protege. Uh-huh. And I think Duck took James Alexander and uh, and Jimmy King. And they would actually sometimes actually step in. Uh-huh. Jimmy King could you know step in and play Cropper's part. You know and oh yeah, just like on a break or just yeah, for and then there were other other people uh, that wanted to get in that couldn't get in Homer Banks and the neighborhood the, the, the African American neighborhood and part of the white neighborhood became aware that if you were a songwriter or a musician you might have a chance at this place over here on Macklemore right and so that but this was after you know Sun Records had already kind of had its arc right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that yeah, was uh-huh, a, uh-huh. another part of town but not mm-hmm. too far away was not it not too far away Rufus knew those people uh huh. Uh-huh. But they, they, uh, son, the Phillips family, uh, they had this wild card, uh, Dewey Phillips, mm-hmm. and he would come over and hang out with us. Mm-hmm. He was crazy. Yeah. He had a show, he had a TV show called, uh, a radio show called Red, Hot, and Blue. Uh-huh. And I'm sure some of the white people may have thought he was black. But he would yell and holler and whoop on that thing, and he'd come over and hang out. And so, and it was his brother Sam Sam uh, that yeah. had the record company yeah. they were doing Elvis Presley and they were doing Johnny Cash Carl yeah. Perkins yeah right yeah. so we were sort of related through this crazy cousin of theirs but you never really mingled some of us mingled they mingled with Cropper Cropper could go over there and get uh, masters made uh, I'm not sure exactly what the connections were but was there still sort of uh, you know the the rift I mean was was it still pretty deep it was segregated it was completely segregated it was segregated except for some people right when were some what were some of the biggest hits that you played on early on you know I know you did the one with uh, with Rufus and you were but you were involved with a lot of uh, big songs whether yeah. either regionally or nationally right I didn't play on a hit record over there probably until William Bell's You Don't Miss Your Water. Mm-hmm. How many years was that? Maybe a year or so later. Okay. Uh-huh. And then when did Sam and Dave come in the picture? That's way later. Oh, that's yeah? That's like, that's after Stax had affiliated with Atlantic, the big record company in New York. Okay. Jerry Wexler went down to Miami and found them and uh, thought that we would be better suited to produce them than his folks up there in New York in New York. So you were producing so you not only were you playing you were producing the music by that point. By producing I mean um, coming up with the songs. With the riffs? Yeah. Our uh, part of our team Isaac Hayes and David Porter uh-huh. formed formulated Sam and Dave. 
They they made the sound. Yeah, you had these two they guys. Wrote the song. I'm sitting in an office and I'm yeah. hearing these songs. Yeah, next door, so I can't concentrate because mm-hmm. they're over there doing. Hold on, I'm coming, and when something is wrong with my baby, and right? This is what I'm hearing coming through the door, so I can't even concentrate on what I'm doing, right? Because they're doing this. Well, music. what's your job at that time? To do what? Try to do what they're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just go to the door and stand there and listen. Yeah. And then you, uh, but you this said, is this is sixty. This is uh, I'm a senior in high school by this time. I mean, a college, I'm yeah, a junior, and I'm about to graduate when all this started to happen. And Otis too. Otis was late too. Yeah, he came sixty three, sixty four. Mm-hmm. He was a driver for uh, Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. A driver. Yeah, he was a he was the guy to go get the hot dogs and to carry the luggage. Hanging around. Oh, really? I saw him. He got out of the car, and the first thing he does is go to the trunk and get all the stuff out and start bringing it in. For which band? Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. No kidding. That's how he got to Stacks. Isn't that unbelievable? And he does his work, and he does it good, and then he comes over and he sits down and says, "Can I sing a song?" Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and he oh, sits yeah. down, and no, we said yes uh, because. Uh, Actually, Johnny's manager really wanted us to hear Otis. He didn't. He didn't say that, but he. Uh-huh. I think he planned. Uh-huh. I think. I think you know. Uh-huh. And then he became uh, o- uh, Otis's um, financier. When you first heard Otis, what was your first reaction? He was sitting right next to. He didn't yeah. have any music or anything. He started singing these arms of mine. And you were and he playing. With, well, I started sing. playing. Once he started singing, I started playing. Yeah, and and that was the first time you heard him sing. Playing hang on or hang on organ. Huh? And uh, the first time I heard him sing. Yeah. Wait, wait, but when he sang, did you know that you know he was the guy? When he started singing, yeah, I think some people had left for the day because we had tried to do a demo on Johnny Pound. But when he started singing, I think Cropper was a few feet away. Yeah, and uh, the chemistry changed. Uh huh. And I started playing on the organ, and I think Cropper walked over and sat down to the piano and started playing triplets. And, uh-huh. um, it just, it just, we just kind of like a storm comes up, you know, like yeah. We just, we just, like, wait a minute. <laughs> we, I think we want to do this, <laughs> and I think we just went right into it. Uh huh. And I think we just forgot about Johnny and the Pine Toppers and started working right on it right then. I believe. On which song? Try uh, these arms of mine. Uh. And I think we just went right on into it. I mean, maybe that's just, you know, memory is not sure. ever really accurate, sure. but this is the, the way it feels to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. But you you could tell by that guy singing that you, that he was a transcendent talent. Yeah, we didn't start asking questions or anything. Or just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just started uh, working on that one particular song. And um, I think because it was unlike Cropper to go sit down at a piano, you know, he wasn't a piano player. Uh huh. But I'm pretty sure that's what he did. He went over there. He ended up on guitar, of course. Yeah. But I think someone else maybe played guitar on that too. But and which song? That was it. These arms. That's the one yeah, that got yeah, me. Right. And he was sitting right next to me. Yeah. And he starts singing this with all this feeling, and uh, and you know, he was the type of person that he wasn't trying to impress you. You know, mm-hmm. he was just doing it. Mm-hmm. Really, so, he was just—he's real. He's right in the moment. He's doing it, yeah. Right, he wasn't yeah, he was showing that up way from the, from there on out too. Sweet guy. Yeah, he was a good friend. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, he never did anything to hurt anybody. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And and which songs of his did you guys back him on? Uh, in in total, the 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 highest moments were uh, "Try a Little Tenderness," oh, "Satisfaction," uh-huh. "I've Been Loving You Too Long," "Oh My God," uh, "Respect." Yeah, you did all those. Yeah. And you, did you you toured with him as well? One time. One time. One tour. He didn't he wasn't and around that long, was he? 
He toured, but he toured with the Barquets. You know, I told you these yeah. kids that started hanging around. Yeah, they he he <laughs> yeah. heard them and loved them and liked them and took them as his band. But you did the records. We did the records. And those were big records. They were. Now, when you guys started touring what, as Booker T and the MGs, I mean, what you start touring right after Green Onions or what? There was no touring for us. No, they wanted us to be a house stacks band. Did that bother you? Well, it did after a while. After yeah. we realized that we could be artists too, right? Not at first, right? And when did that? When did that sort of? How did that shake out? It didn't really work out. Yeah, we did one tour, one Stax tour, and as a band, Booker T and the MGs reached about probably ten percent of its potential. And did, are you bitter about that? No, no. I had a great career there. Yeah, I mean, I was a kid in Memphis that had that got a career in the music business, and you influenced, you created a sound. I mean, you were part of the architecture of a sound. I mean, because when I talk to people, you know, especially people who are real music nerds, you know, that the sound that came out of Stax that, you know, you were part of, uh, you know, really defined, you know, groove-driven R&B. We were building it from within. We had no idea what we were doing. Sure. But we, but we did have these tenets, uh, these principles, and there were some of them established by different people. Uh, Al Jackson would always say, Keep it simple, mm-hmm. you know. Keep it funky, mm-hmm. not too many notes, you know. And, and we and we we stuck to it like a like a code. Uh huh. And that and how in your mind, like you know, because I mean, some of the growth was simultaneous to the R and B that was coming out of Detroit. And yeah. in your mind, you know, because there's is there's such a profound difference in sound. And and when you think about it, you know, what is you know they were they were sort of hook driven and hit driven in a different way than Stax was. And what do you see as the difference in those sounds? <clears throat> hmm. Because well, it seems ours, I believe, was a little more basic. Uh huh. To the. Uh, a little more accessible, uh, a little more immediate, uh-huh. um, raw, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it was simpler, mm-hmm. and because it was like it was a it was a groove driven thing. There was a, there. It, it seemed that yeah. the, you know the Detroit sound was trying to make pop music in the old model, and what Stax was doing was something uniquely uh, a, a unique style of R and B that wasn't completely driven by I think you know, white music to a certain degree. It was. There was some rock and some rockabilly in it and, mm-hmm. and there was some blues there was a little country at times mm-hmm. so there was definitely some jazz yeah mm-hmm. but it was just a different groove yeah because it seems that funk comes directly out of what you were doing it does and it, and a part of it happened because of our limitations because of the sound mm-hmm. we only had one speaker <laughs> one track <laughs> one one bathroom for the echo really uh-huh. so that's a, you used a bathroom then you had a, bath- well, you couldn't go to the bathroom because you had the echo mic in there what does that mean an echo mic what well, you- it means you have to wait till somebody's not recording something to go to the bathroom but i mean but what did, what did the bathroom how did you what, how did that work so you they needed set it right in the middle and they put a speaker to it up towards the wall so you, you get that reverb <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so part of your sound is the bathroom at Stacks. But if you think about the movie theaters of yeah. the 1950s right. and the tile that they put in yeah. there, they're made as perfect echo chambers. Yeah. 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 Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they didn't know that, but yeah. so let's, uh, let me move up a little bit. Sure. Now, the uh, I'm kind of fascinated with Albert King. What was your role in, in, in working with him? Well, after we realized we could start making records, they started assigning different artists to different people. Yeah. Both to uh, produce and to come up with material for. We didn't do that much uh, covering of songs by other people. Right. 
So we found out, and, and of course, Jim's Jim's focus was to get original songs that he could publish. Mm-hmm. That's where he figured he was going to make his money, because he wasn't so sure he could sell a whole bunch of records. But if he could publish them, yeah, and they were good songs. Right. He figured he could make money. So the emphasis was on songwriting. So we developed songwriting teams, and my team consisted of me and William Bell, and we got the assignment to write a song for Albert King, and of course, we waited till the last minute. And uh, the day before he came in, the night before, William came over to my house, and we wrote this song, Born Under a Bad Sign. Oh, that's a great song. And that's the first time I was actually consciously in the studio with uh, Albert King. And uh, But that's a great song. I mean, Thank some. You. I mean, you know, that one's not only his signature song, but a few people have covered it. I think Cream covered it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a seminal minor blues song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and uh, we're, we're, how, do, how did the lyrics unfold with that? I mean, William is a genius, uh, and um, I started playing this thing on the piano. That was your groove. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just sat there, and, and uh, he just sang the story to that. That's unbelievable. Um, and what was Albert like? Oh, that's when it came alive. Yeah. <laughs> When, yeah, when, yeah, like, yeah, it's playing beat. Da- David's job was always to teach the lyrics to the singer. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, Albert, he's got to play a little guitar before he starts singing to get in the mood. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. starts this thing, man, and it was just electric. So that was, that was he one started of the best doing... moments of my life. Really? Uh-huh, was when we started playing that song in the studio. And, and I just got excited when I heard him play. And, you know, he's played kind of like Jimi Hendrix, right-handed, you know. and the, Left-handed? Because... Or whatever. Was up, yeah, way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Way. That way, you know, you 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 can pull the strings. You don't have to push the strings. Right, because he didn't restring it. He had the bass strings on the bottom. Right, right. So if you're if you're right-handed, yeah, and you're gonna, I mean, or rather, if you're left-handed, you don't, you don't have to push up to yeah. bend the note. You pull it. Right, so he go way up. Oh man! So and it was just it just created this this incredible sound. And he was just doing those fills in between your groove, and that was it. Just took off. That's a beautiful song. Now, were you around when they when Stax uh, sort of broke open and started doing some comedy records and stuff like that? Did I they? had left by then. Oh yeah. Now let's talk about okay. So Booker well, they did Richard Pryor was gone, but they did some great 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 records though. So now Booker T and the MGs. You know, I was listening to some of those other records. Uh, I've got I, I got the one you did in '72 that I was just listening to today. Melting Pot. Yeah, uh-huh. it's a great record. Thank you. Yeah. And then I started you know poking around a little bit, and I didn't realize that uh, that what did it feel like when you started to realize that you had fans and Lennon and McCartney, and that the sound that you guys were doing was an, a profound influence on guys that were 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 taking music in a completely other direction. Well, Mark, that didn't make much difference actually. Uh, I didn't think much about it no i mean i appreciate all the people that love the music yeah that appreciate it but i didn't I, um, no didn't. i didn't try to change anything oh no that. no but was yeah. it flattering did it feel oh, absolutely oh, it's, oh yeah it was great yeah yeah and unbelievable and never imagined right right so did, and you were able to to meet the beatles right and they they, they uh mm-hmm. reach out to you or no well i they they said the beatles came down to the bag of nails we were hanging out at this club in london yeah and i never did uh, if they if they were the beatles i didn't they're a lot of people in London look like that. And what, that who time. were you playing with at that I, time? I don't think I recognized them. I was playing with the, the MGs. Okay, uh, so you did tour England. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I, I, they, I didn't meet one of the Beatles till New York. I met um, uh, George Harrison in New York at uh, at Bob Dylan's concert, and we went to lunch. 
but that's the only time I remember ever hanging out with one of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, and you have. Well, you I met Ringo Starr on the street here in L.A. a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> well, that was the only time. But you yeah. did record a bunch of their tunes, right? I did. You did a whole album of uh, Abbey Road music. That was nineteen seventy-one or seventy-two. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what inspired that? Just the fact. I was trying to pay tribute to them. Mm-hmm. They had been a rock and roll band that had been trailblazing. Mm-hmm. They had become the top band in the world, mm-hmm. and they were the real thing as far as I was concerned. They never did stop striving to make better music because they had made it. And when they came out with Abbey Road with all its new, with, I mean, oh yeah, with all its new melodies and all its um, just this dedication, just you know, just they they were real, real entertainers, and yeah. I, I just wanted to pay tribute to them for 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 being so real and so good. And those are, you did beautiful versions of that stuff, and they were they were they were like you did the full runs of the the putting the songs together, mm-hmm. and that was that fun. It was great. And it was great. What? Why did you? Did, was it because of Green Onions that you you chose to go specifically instrumental for so long? No, uh, we would. That was pretty much dictated by the record once we'd have found some success there mm-hmm. uh, they wanted us to continue there sure of course you know i wanted to branch out into all types of other things vocals and country music and jazz and we well, did do that in a solo record right 73 or so i did after i left stacks what was the name of that record again oh i did three of them one was called uh uh try and love again yeah uh, another was called the best of you another right was another one's called i got you and and, they, and you mix up all the sounds. I mean, there's country stuff on there. There's some blues yeah. stuff on there. There's some R and B stuff on there. And it's, you're mm-hmm. doing a lot of singing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's. Do you feel? Do you feel that you were able to able really to you know find your your way with that as a as a performer? Did you, you feel like because uh, you know being known for Booker T and the MGs, were you uh, satisfied with how the vocals and stuff went on your own? Well, the process for me, uh, you know, Mark, I have found satisfaction in just doing it, mm-hmm. and I'm happy with just that. Well, that's great. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no expectation. Yeah. You and, just do and, the work. Yeah, and it's just, you know, there's so much gratification right there. And and, and now, like, what's amazing is that you've you've lived long enough. And you're you're a young man. That's a is a fortunate thing that you started when you were thirteen. Mm-hmm. So you know, not only did you you know help define a sound, but now you you constantly have new artists that are like you know want to be part of the Booker T sound, right? Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. like I saw Neil Young with you back in Neil Young uh-huh. back in what was that in the nineties, right? Yeah. The early nineties. Yeah. I, I was That's like, when we started playing together, huh? right? I was like, yeah. how the hell is Booker T and the MGs going to play with Neil Young? I didn't even understand it, but what? How did that relationship start? Oh, that was organic. Uh, you know, Neil Neil plays that 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 rock and roll guitar, and uh, he writes these heartfelt songs. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I, had, I I knew everything he'd done by the time we got to got on stage. I didn't, I didn't have to rehearse that much. Uh huh. Um, but he just like he was able to like his he's like you too in that you know his sound is he's very timeless. I mean, it's not yeah. it's not really hinged. To a time. Okay, so he wrote "I Believe in You." you yeah, know, and, yeah. And he and and with uh, the stuff that he did with Graham and, and David and, and uh, Stephen, I knew all the songs. Right. So. So it was just easy. We just went on stage and played them. And that you not a lot of rehearsing. Didn't need. No, didn't need too much rehearsing. And Steve's and Cropper's solid. He can play anything, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and well, Duck, Duck Dunn, those guys. Well, Cropper didn't go with us on that tour. He didn't. Was, was there? Me, it was just me and Duck with 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 David and Stephen and because uh, you know Stephen Stills is a 
consummate guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he and David were the only guitars on stage. Oh. Uh, and Neil, when yeah, Neil yeah, played yeah, guitar. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. I don't know why I decided that uh, Steve was with you. I don't, I don't know. Well, we actually did a tour with Booker T and the MGs and Neil Young also. Well, that must have been what I saw, because uh-huh. I would have remembered yeah. if Stills was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And and then you uh, that was mostly Neil Young songs, right? It was Neil Young songs, right? Yeah, and but you and but, some MG songs, but that's a rare thing that you have a complete comfort level with being a support band. Oh yeah, well yeah. that's what we were trained to do. <laughs> yeah, at yeah, that's what yeah. we did for years, right? Mm-hmm. And and what is when you when you set in to do that? You know, what is there a thought process that goes on? Like do you like do you how do you sort of service? The front guy. I mean, is there, you know, is it just a matter of following or just creating a a, a, a bed of sound? That Both. You, yeah. Both is according to who's out front. Uh-huh. Sometimes we uh, we set the set the pace. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it just depends on how it feels at that moment yeah, with the know, guy. I mean, with somebody like Fogarty, you're not yeah. going to be setting the pace. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You're going to follow John. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. What mm-hmm. about with Neil? Uh, same with Neil. Oh yeah, Neil. Neil's Neil's songs are all unless it's a new song, mm-hmm. uh, a, a completely original. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the guys that needed a little more? Uh, you know, sort of instead of them setting the pace, where you knew you had to set the pace. Who were some of those guys? We did that with Sam and Dave. Oh yeah, we did that with. Um, uh, it, it varies. Yeah, but Otis, he drove he drove his own. Otis knew what he wanted to do. Uh, he wasn't always able to play it for you, but he had it in his mind, uh-huh. so he could either sing it to you. Uh, How would you characterize what you, it, it's? It's just interesting to me that you know what has been known as you know really a pure soul sound. You know, had you know had Duck in the rhythm section and had Steve on that guitar, and, and that really defined you know a pure soul sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's just interesting that it was really uh you, you know it was a a, a a balanced you know black and white mm-hmm. band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, they made a conscious effort at a young age in in high school to uh study black music and they loved it mm-hmm. from the heart. Uh Steve loved um oh uh the guitar player with the five RL, Steve emulated. Oh, yeah, him. I, know, I don't know who that is. Steve Cropper did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he ended. He came out playing like that. Guy. Yeah. And Duck, uh, even in his job, uh, distributed all the records from uh, King Records in uh, Cincinnati. Uh-huh. All the James Brown Duck is a is a walking. Freddie King. No, I think no, was no, on no, King no, Record too. No. Was he? No. Yeah, just... well, but Duck w- was a walking R and B encyclopedia. Early on, he knew all the songs from uh-huh. Elmore James. To, I mean, he knew all of them. Uh-huh. So it was in his blood. Uh-huh. He's a white man. Yeah, and so was Steve. Yeah, but they weren't. Um, and I guess they listened to in their families. They listened to country music, but that wasn't the music that they took to heart. That moved them. Yeah, yeah. And was it when when you guys were playing together? Was there was there ever tension publicly? Not between us. No, no, no. I know, but like oh, in yeah. Res- yeah. Yeah, I mean, people. Well, they couldn't believe it. And and who did that fall on? Did they take flack for it? It's according to what neighborhood we were in. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and what what was uh, what was the kind of reactions if they were negative? What would happen? I mean, who would get the who would get the flack? Would it we be didn't, Duck and We Steve didn't or? get the negative reactions um, very much. We weren't on the road very much. Right. And the only time we ended up in those situations were when we needed food or when we needed to go to a hotel. Mm-hmm. And we we were very adept at uh, 
checking in for Steve and Duck mm-hmm. and then giving them their keys. Mm-hmm. And they would do the same for us. Mm-hmm. We'd do the same with the food. Right. Just go in and buy yeah, and a we'll double, double amount and yeah. bring it out. And that was what you just worked yeah. around it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like a, so, hey, I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard to imagine, you know, because you know, obviously it's still tense in some places mm-hmm. now, but not as much, but that it was really sort of uh, institutionalized like that. It was. And, it and, it, said, and we were breaking the rule. <laughs> yeah. You're not, no, you're not breaking this rule. People didn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. that we were actually breaking that rule. It, they just it didn't make sense to them. No, no, no so they didn't, you know. <laughs> it doesn't make no doesn't yeah. even register. You guys are not playing together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't under I, it's yeah. so hard for me to understand that level of ignorance. Yeah. Now, um let's talk a little bit before we uh I don't, don't want to rush anything, but now Otis like you know he died at 27. Mhm. And, you know, were you guys pretty tight when that happened? We were. I was personally close with him. He was personally close with everybody that I can remember. Duck and Steve, everybody, yeah. Everybody had a relationship with him, yeah. And it just must have shattered the whole community. It, well, it did. You know, never, it, wasn't a, it was completely unexpected. Never expected that. Um, yeah. Do you pay any credence to the conspiracy theories that it was uh, intentional on behalf of the label or anything? Oh, no way. Oh, good. No way. The, the, yeah, the, our people... Uh, Jim Stewart, Estelle Axon, the people that were running Atlantic, the people, they would have kept Otis alive forever if they could have. <laughs> right, right. I'm right. certain of that. I just heard some bullshit about the mafia muscling the Atlantic. I don't know. Well, that's yeah. bullshit. That's complete error. Good, good. So erase it from your mind. I Everybody will. that was there that was close to him, yeah. even if they were making money off of him, yeah. fell in love with him and they would have had him live from, from now on. I found it very disturbing that. Um, I can't remember. I think it's over in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that they had a piece of the plane. I found it very mm-hmm. disturbing. I felt the same way. I, like didn't, I didn't want it there. Yeah. Why is it there? Yeah. I know. yeah it's, it's morbid. Too much sensationalism. Yeah. It's but morbid. you know what, Mark? What happened was it was just it was just negligence. It was just they didn't take care of that plane like they should have, mm. and they just uh, got in bad weather up there, and they should have had to put a new battery in that thing, mm. and uh, they just something something didn't didn't run the instruments correctly up there, and it just, it was just it was an accident. Yeah, yeah, of course, horrible. Yeah. Now, all right, let's talk about the producing uh, because you know you still, you know, you do it, yeah, and 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 I guess it just became second nature. After being a you know a band for so long and, and building these songs and building that sound, now like when you sit down to, to produce something like Willie Nelson Stardust, I mean, how do you work with that guy? Um, my path has just led me to people like that, and it's just been amazing. It was very very natural with me and Willie. It was just like sitting down like we are now. It was just talking about songs that we loved, and then starting to play them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then just saying, well, what key here? When do you want to go to the chorus? When do you want to go to the verse? And after so much of that, just transferring it into the studio. Uh-huh. And just, it was very natural. Mm-hmm. Like, it, what, there was no uh, pre uh, premeditation. You're old pros. Mm-hmm. You know your own sounds. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you're coming together. And the only thing to put together was the electronics or the, the logistics of it. Uh-huh. And you had a technician there, and you just you, you did the two of you stand there and go, well, how do you, what do you want to do here? Or was that I mostly I was pretty you? much in charge of that okay. part of, that part of it, uh, and I had a great had two great engineers on it, and I had um, actually we were over here in Laurel Canyon when we did the 
was it Log Canyon or Beverly Hills, uh, at Emmylou Harris's house, and her husband had this recording truck. This mm-hmm. is a great sounding truck with a great sounding Stevens tape recorder in there. And he yeah. just he just pulled it up into the driveway and put the microphones out on the house. They had done that many times, so they just let us use their house. Huh. And we recorded the album there. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Did you work with Emily Wu before? Had not worked with her before. No, I knew her husband. Yeah, and he's a wait, he's a producer. Brian Ahern. Uh-huh. Yeah, Emily Wu's got a hell of a voice, huh? Yeah, oh yeah. And now, like in the last few years, you're doing. Uh, I mean, that that Grammy nominated. What was that? The Drive By Truckers. How did you How did you hook up with those guys? Uh, I met those through my, my then manager Dave Bartlett and uh, yeah. through Andy Calkin at Anti Anti Records. It seems so, like uh, a weird match. No, 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 it wasn't. Uh, they were um, they were fans, and uh, David's uh, uh, Patterson's father had had played uh, music that was very close to me. Oh and, yeah, um, and I, you know, have been a guitar freak all my life. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. And I wrote all those songs on guitar, and um, most of those songs we ended up with four to six guitars on every track. It, it it just became a guitar album. Potato hole. Potato hole. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the organ's there though. Yeah, the organ's there. Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. those guys are crunching it up with a lot of guitars. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. And then uh, and then you work with the Roots. Yeah. That must have been amazing. It was. It was. It was. <laughs> because he, they're almost like your children. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. They said that. <laughs> oh, they did. Yeah. Well, they had listened to everything we'd done. Right. Because they grew up with it. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that because, like, you know, especially with with now, as a guy, you know, who was in a band who was, uh, you know, the backing band for so long. Now you got people like the Drive By Truckers. You got the guys like the Roots who are like, we want to support you. They did. That, that's exactly <laughs> what they did. It was yeah. great. It was yeah. great. They let me do whatever I wanted to do. If I wanted to play guitar, if I wanted to play organ. Uh huh. It was great on both in both situations. Mm-hmm. And and what was it like playing with like? It, what was the feeling in knowing that you would you would built the groove that they grew up on, and mm-hmm. and actually made you know, that you are partially responsible for the drive shaft of the music that that propels them now. It was great. It was like I was being paid back for all my hard work. I got an open slate with both those bands uh-huh. just to do whatever and it, uh, I wanted to, and it, I think it it enabled me to to let go and be creative and imaginative and mm-hmm. you know not have any restrictions musically uh-huh mm-hmm. that yeah. must be an amazing feeling it was great yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. now tell me about the the new record uh the sound the alarm record the title is appropriate uh-huh know, i i actually am on fire mark uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what's happening it's uh, I, I i feel like i'm in some ways just starting oh really uh, that's uh-huh. a great feeling and uh the ideas are there and i'm so excited about everything um well, I really feel like I'm uh, beginning to uh, learn the power of music to make me and people feel good and to uh, bring good into the world. Uh-huh. Uh, it's such a powerful thing. And uh, and now I feel like I'm uh, learning how to do it the right way what you know, with mean? all the experience. Well, I, 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 I'm feeling comfortable with it, and I'm feeling comfortable with, with the... Uh, path that the music has me on uh-huh. I don't have to worry so much about like trying to get the right person to play this part or that right. part uh, it, it, things are like falling into place for me 
Well, that's a great thing to hear because, you know, what I was getting at with some of the other questions that, and I didn't want to, uh, to you to take any offense was that, you know, you evolved as a musician that could really do anything. And then by circumstance, you know, you, you were you know, part of a sound that, you know, you're personally responsible for. Mm-hmm. And then when I was sort of looking at your work, you know, I realized that, you know, in, in my mind, you know, after doing all this time, you know, backing other people and, and having some hits on your own, but mostly like you were saying, you know, you were trained to be a backing band. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you tried some solo stuff, which was, was satisfying and, and mm-hmm. great musically. Mm-hmm. But I always wondered about, you know, in looking at your stuff that, you know, where your identity was with this stuff. And, and from what I'm hearing you say now is that you finally kind of arrived in yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you finally mm-hmm. feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And, I, and I, I really, you know, am fortunate to be where I am right now to have the ideas that I do and the fact that they come and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling comfortable with it. And, I, and I'm not worrying about things that I used to worry about, like if the right drummer is going to be there or if the groove is going to be yeah, there. Yeah. I'm learning to flow with it. You yeah, know? And, yeah. And, um, and it's just, it's like a burning sensation. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. You know? It's creativity, pure yeah, creativity. Exactly, exactly. I think I'm tapping onto it now. That's in great. In a way I never did before. That's awesome. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and also you got, and now you're, uh, I mean, it happened a while ago, but you were early on an inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That must have been pretty amazing. It was. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I, you, know, you couldn't? No. It, uh, I, I never did uh, think at that point that the music we were making was was uh, rock and roll and you know I guess I was thrown off by the name uh-huh oh yeah the rock and roll yeah, hall yeah, of fame yeah it's a broad but I'm so uh flattered and uh, honored to be uh, inducted at that time yeah that was 1992 yeah yeah it was just like it was pretty new right must have been the that time. was 1992 and Quincy Jones was just inducted this year right I right. mean Albert King was just inducted this year yeah you know and so I was inducted way back then right right <laughs> so it's such an honor you were on the short list man yeah <laughs> It's great. Yeah. Now, do you like on a on a day to day? But do you you stay in touch with uh, Cropper and and, yeah, I'm in touch with Cropper. Uh huh. Yeah. And you guys are like you know you you talk and yeah. Yeah, we've been through a lot of changes. Uh, He's you know somebody called him a a homebody the other day. I I was out I was out in Franklin, Tennessee, and I was trying to get him to come out to the theater and uh, Uh couldn't get him to come out there. But he he um. You know we've lost we've we've gained a lot and we've lost a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, you know we lost Duck, we yeah. lost Al, Al Jackson, which was the you know uh, big part of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, but but we're still together and uh, um, you know he's just better than he ever was. <laughs> that Telecaster uh-huh. man, yeah, he's and, the master. Yeah, uh, last week. A week before last, we were playing on a record uh, by Eddie Mitchell, the French guy, uh-huh. and it just turned out great. Oh, yeah. And then we did, uh, we played over at uh, a theater over in Phoenix together. We don't play that much, but we, sure. we play some. Sure. We and played at Eric Clapton's uh, about three, week, three or four weeks ago at Eric Clapton's Guitar Festival in New York. Oh, yeah? Did you play with Eric? Madison. Eric didn't play. No, Crop and I played. Just okay? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. With my band. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Oh, that yeah. must have been great. Is yeah. it like, do you feel the history? Oh, yeah. It was It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a treat to talk to you and a treat that you... That you know you you you're alive and well to enjoy all this stuff. Oh, and, thank uh, you. It's a real honor. I appreciate you coming by. Thank you. My pleasure. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you, folks. I hope you dug that. I hope there was some new uh, new things in there for you. It was certainly an honor for me to uh, to listen and uh, to engage with Booker T. Jones. 
And also, like oddly, after I talked to him, I was at a, a weird. Uh, I was at some guy's garage in uh, in where was that? Outside of Buffalo, he was selling uh, records, and I got a bunch of Stax records. I got some really sort of great old Booker T records, some live Stax stuff, and. Uh, but anyways, man, it was just one of those situations. It was one of those things where, like, I'm, I can't believe I'm talking to this cat. Can't believe it. So that's our show. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Be nice on the comment board. Jesus, I mean, hardly ever any of you ever comment except for three guys, and they, they tend to go at each other. It's like, whatever. Do you want me to take it away? Do you want me to take the comment board away? So if you haven't been there, go there and show some love. Do something. Uh, get the app, upgrade to the uh, premium app, the free app, upgrade the premium app, get all of them, get the first 100 on the DVD, first 100 uh, MP3 files. Jeez, you can do a lot of stuff there. There's new posters there. What else? Justcoffee.coop. Go there. You can get there through the site, get the WTF blend, and I get a little something on the back end. Death Black Cat looks great. He looks really fucking good. I've been giving him uh, cooked chicken. And uh, he's digging that, so I'm seeing more of him, obviously. Uh, who who wouldn't keep coming around for fucking chicken? Am I right? Oh, shit. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!